What's up, everybody? We are back with another episode of the EX Performance Podcast. This week, I am joined by my head coach, Jeremy Kane, and then one of my individual athletes, one of my tactical athletes, Taylor. Uh, he is going to be giving some pretty good insight on what it means to be um, both a high-level competitive athlete in his chosen sport and a high-level tactical athlete, or what I would consider a high-level tactical athlete. So um, we'll get it kicked off today with just some introductions. Obviously, I'm Chris McNamara, the owner of Evolution Athletics. Uh, and like I said, Jeremy Kane, my head coach, you guys have heard his beautiful voice before. And then uh, Taylor, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, man? I think the audience would really like to hear um, about where you're at now, but also what you've done in the past. Absolutely. Um, uh, in the past, my uh, athletic background comes from an endurance uh, perspective. Um, I spent a lot of time cycling, doing triathlon in, in high school. Um, and then in college, I started rowing. Um, I spent five years rowing. And the last two and a half of those were in and around the U.S. national team. Um, I went to world championships one time in Bulgaria, got to wear the stars and stripes there. Um, fantastic experience. Um, and then spent uh, probably two years moving around the U.S. Um, chasing flat water and uh, fast, fast running <laughs> machine times. Nice. Um, uh, after that, came to the Army and... Uh, I'm a new tactical athlete uh, here at Evolution, and I've had a fantastic time so far and hope to get some questions answered about what it actually means to be a tactical athlete. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, what a sport. Yeah, talk about <laughs> talk about some uh, some mental fortitude there. Oh, my God. So you're just going to pull on this thing for, for hours on end. Yeah. Um, I think one of the funniest conversations I had with, with Taylor early on was talking about rowing. And so... Obviously, as a rower, he's you know he's like the erg and calls it these other things, and we just use it with our individual athletes. And I think we had, I think we had like a five k program for someone. He was like, yeah, I remember doing like five k repeats, like like ten in a day. I'd do like 50, 60 k rowing in a day. I was like, man, that's perspective right there. Yeah. So um, thanks for being with us, man. Um, I think where I think I think where we should start today is kind of what I would define um, tactical athletes as, and and I really think that's key. Because the term tactical athlete gets thrown out a lot in this space, but it is so drastically varied, right? So when I look at it, there's obviously combat-focused tactical athletes. That's your military, but more importantly, combat arms military. And I think people throw out tactical athlete like you wear a uniform. So I think that's a that's <laughs> you do a burpee, you wear yep, a uniform. Yep, you, you've you've run and you wear a uniform. You're a tactical athlete. I think that's that's a misnomer. Um, but there's also what I call domestic response athletes, right? We've got law enforcement, we've got firefighters, we've got EMS, we've got these other folks who do these things that are a little bit different. The job demands are different. Therefore, the programming should be different. And just the holistic approach should be different, in my opinion. So I think that's key because in, you know, in what started this question dialogue early on um, was the difference between competitive athletes and tactical athletes. But I think we got to go one step deeper. Right. Because when I look at let's just take football players. Right. Because I'm looking at Jeremy. So when I look at a football player, we don't train all football players the same just because they're football players. A quarterback does something different than a lineman. A lineman does something different than a running back. Yet we throw out the term tactical athlete and it's synonymous with everybody that wears the uniform and, and does running and stuff. So that's kind of how I look at it. Um, you know, there's there's a difference in terms of what their tasks are. Um, how we periodize. And I know a lot of people say tactical athletes have no off season. I disagree. Um, there are times when your job demands change. Uh, we'll get into that. 
Um, there's higher peaks and valleys depending on what these athletes are, right? Like a domestic response, like a cop and a firefighter EMS guy, 99.9% of their job is the same day in and day out versus a tactical athlete in the combat arms profession may have a very polarized um, view of what they do on a daily basis. Like, you know, I've got four plus years in combat zones and sometimes it'd be extremely high adrenaline every night, day in and day out. And then there were other times of extreme boredom and way too much time to work out and hurt yourself. So there's those things. And then, you know, the last thing I would say is a lot of people forget that the tactical athlete is a team-based fitness approach. Not so much in the selection process, which you got done with in the pipeline and everything. But when you get to a team, and I come from the Ranger Regiment, so we'll talk about a fire team or maybe a squad, but there's also ODA teams, right? Other, other team size elements. If someone, you don't want everybody homogenized. Because if you look at Jeremy, you're what? How tall? Six foot. Six foot. I'm five nine, right? You know, so if we're drastically different sizes, there are strengths and weaknesses to that. And if I've got to carry some really heavy ass stuff for a really long infill, Jeremy's probably going to carry more than me. We're not going to try and equalize the team. It's it, it's, it's because I, <laughs> I, I'm the gray beard. I'm old, you know, so I make the young bloods carry it. No, so he, uh, you know, we we want to think about it like a team-based approach as well it's interesting to hear you say that because from where i come from in, in the rowing world um to a large extent everyone really trains the same like it's it's one event um it's it's 2k as fast as you can um but the training is kind of done with with the fact in mind that to get to the olympic final you have to race sometimes eight to ten times in the week before or to qualify to get your boat to the olympics or what have you so you're, you're just basically doing nothing but volume and, and coaches in that space and in a lot of endurance spaces I've found are more about coaching their sport. Like it's like a golf swing. Like you're going to do the same rowing stroke over and over. Mm -hmm. So we're going to teach you how to do the stroke really well. But the, the science of the human performance is just kind of, well, Hey, like all these other Olympic teams are doing it this way. Like let's focus on doing this. And you know, there are obviously differences, but, um, I found that so much of the endurance world is just like, Hey, let's just throw, you know, 200 K of volume on you this week. And then, and then, you know, two months from now we'll start going fast. Mm -hmm. um, that, that gave me an injury and, you know, yeah, that's what I was going to say. When you, when you take that approach to it, I'd be curious to see the injury rate during each of those phases. I bet you there's an overuse injury rate when it comes to adding in volume, you see it in every sport. But then all of a sudden when you go to pick up intensity, now you're not moving properly into a way that allows you to express intensity like in a safe manner. It's the same way we see with tactical athletes. Like all these guys come to us and they want to just start rucking right away. And it's like, dude, you can't squat two and a half times your body weight. Like how do I expect you to absorb that eccentric for 18 plus miles? And so we, we, we'll get into the programming differences between performance, tactical, and then like also how to lay it out. And that's one thing we talk about is the I main conversation all the time about is how can we lay it out safely to add in volume and movement mechanics. But then when we pick up intensity, it, the kind of the paradigm shifts properly before you're ready for it. Yeah. And so that's where like even going back, like at the at the 30,000 foot macro view and, and the definition of the tactical athlete thing that I mentioned earlier is that for a sport just like you were saying, there is a technical aspect, even something like rowing, right? So something like rowing, a very monostructural, repetitive movement, there's a technical aspect to it. 
there is a tactical aspect to it and your pacing and your strategy and your cadence and all these things that you have to be aware of. But there is the physiology physiology piece. With tactical athletes, I view them as, as highly reliable decision makers, right? Everybody thinks about the physical skill set. With tactical athletes, the physical skill set is just to get you to a place in time to make a decision, right? So when you are doing CQB, one of the things that everybody thinks about with tactical athletes for the audience that's close quarters battle, that is going into a room and shooting things. It's not so much about can you do it, yes or no, pass, fail, how fast. It's can I target discriminate? Can I shoot accurately? How do I move? How fast do I move while I can make a decision and shoot accurately? So we build a physical skill set to allow you to express your mental skill set or get you to the time and place with the bandwidth to make a higher order decision. So I think that's one thing a lot of people forget about, even on something like land nav, right? In a lot of the, the pipelines that are out there, you've got land nav, you've got rucking, you've got these other things, but you still have to be switched on mentally, right? You got to keep a pace count the whole way. You know, you've got to be able to um, terrain associate the whole way. You've got to be able to read a map and use numbers and, and plot coordinates. So if your physical skill set is so close to red line because you haven't prepared properly, you can't think. And so I think that's one of the bigger things that I like to step back and say, okay, how do I build a program that will develop the physical attributes to allow this guy or girl to think better in a time of stress and under a, a period of like, high duress i should say yeah just it frees everything up like the less you're worried about stuff and one way that i do it personally when guys are getting ready to go to a selection of some sort um give them like a three hour or four hour walk with a ruck on and then i tell them to annotate like how they're feeling um and two things typically happen it's pretty awesome to see so you get the one guy who maybe isn't ready yet maybe he's like three months out his comments are this fucking sucked i was out there my shoulders are starting to hurt um, all this kind of like physical attributes. And then you get the guy that's like peaked, kind of ready to go for selection a week or two out. And he's like, oh man, it was nice weather today. My feet were really comfortable in my socks. Uh, my nutrition plan was this. My hydration plan was this. They're thinking on a whole new level because they're not worried about the 55 pound pack they got on their back. So that leads me to a question for you guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, when you when you're programming for a tactical athlete versus versus somebody whose only job is to you know put up their clean clean and jerk as heavy as possible or run a mile as fast as possible. Stop talking about that. <laughs> yeah, only I'm, I'm looking right at Jeremy. <laughs> looking right at Jeremy right now. A really easy job, like lifting lots of weight. Yeah, yeah. You know? But as as opposed to that, like is is there a difference in the programming? Say say you're going to program some kind of uh, like an AMRAP or a circuit or something. Um, a, f- a finisher movement for a workout like is is there an intention or is is the workout designed in such a way that you're trying to keep that athlete out of like just going dark immediately or uh or or do you still find a place for that in the program like what are the what are the what are the differences i guess between like you know are you trying to teach that within the programming or are you relying on that person to know not to do that on the day of the event no i think i think let's use you as a real example you know um because you're here and so that's that's one thing that i know you can go dark you come from a sport it is a pain sport 2k rope. yep all right i mean you know breaking ribs or dislocating ribs because you're pulling so hard on the handle right that's 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 you know your thing you have done it um, and so I think that's a, a difference in the individual analysis of the athlete early on. And then me 
uh, getting to know the athlete as we go in a sport like rowing or in a sport like triathlon or something like that, there are known demands, right? There, I can do a comparative analysis of you on your swim and your bike and your run versus the field. I can do a comparative analysis on you on your swim week to week. So then I can dose that appropriately. For the tactical athlete, it's a little bit different. Time and place, right time, right place. But when I am programming for a tactical athlete, just in where you're at in your career now, I'm looking at longevity. I'm looking at what will take you through the course of a career at a very high level. The more often you go dark and the more you use that intensity as your metric, that has a lifetime cost, right? It has a cost on how long you'll be able to do your job from just the wear and tear. Now, everyone adjusts appropriately. You are very good about your nutrition and recovery and these other things. Some of my other tactical athletes, admittedly, are not, right? They like to go dark because it's a badge of honor and it's it's cool to throw down with the rest of the team. However, if I'm worried about longevity and they're not balancing that with adequate recovery, I'm either going to break that person, get them sick, or just burn them out. And so that's a difference in terms of sport versus um, the tactical athlete crowd. So if I'm trying to if I'm trying to program for you to keep you in your career for a very long time at a very high level, I have to dose that appropriately. Some other folks, and I think there are some other systems that come from more of a professional athlete um, basis that are now moving into the tactical space who never go there because you know it's not in in scientific literature yeah. and stuff. It's kind of hard to prove when and where to use that, so they stay away from it altogether. I think you have to balance both at the right time and right place. Yeah, I think for, I don't know, the way like I kind of look at it is for someone who's, when we talk about longevity for tactical athletes, and I'm programming a workout, Austin's a, a good athlete of mine that I do this for, I think about varied contractions. Like, what contractions do you have to go through when he's training, posturally, shoulder extension, kind of breaking down movement patterns, and just kind of get him moving through those at like a steady pace. That way his body's not overexerting, but he's able to kind of control the movement. Sport or CrossFit, or whatever your said sport is, like he was saying, we have data, so I need to build your reps, slash volume, slash build you into intensity to get to those said metrics. Um, and I think oftentimes what we see end up happening go wrong when people try to blend the two, one, or I rather think people think this CrossFit thing has the word functional in it, so that must be tactical, which it's not. Um, but I also think that people think doing hundreds of burpees and hundreds of box jumps and CrossFit is getting you ready to suck in a selection or for tactical stuff when it's not. So I think there's a confusion there. <laughs> yeah. And that's like, you know, we do the same quote unquote sport analysis, time distance analysis, work analysis with our tactical athletes that we do, we would do with a sport athlete, right? So there is absolutely val validity in when you were rowing, your coach is saying, hey, I need you at 100K to 200K of volume this week. We're building a big aerobic base. I just need you to get those things in because it's kind of proven within the sport, right? So a little bit anecdotal, but proven within the sport, and they know what works. A lot of those coaches, they have a good intuition and know what works. So there's times and place for that. I do the same thing for rucking, right? So there is a bunch of good literature with force plates out there and, and accelerometers and all these other things that show what the um, – tissue demands are in a ruck two to three times your body weight with each step okay so if i'm looking at a standard 45 pound ruck that most people use in in timed events for the army at least well that's your body weight so me 180 pound guy 
plus 45 pounds. So just with my body weight, two to three times my weight, I'm looking at 360 to 540 pounds of force every single step for miles, for miles <laughs> on end and then add a 45-pound ruck. So that goes back to the athlete analysis, right? So when I did a lot of your initial entry screening stuff, I saw you got an engine for days. But comparatively, your absolute strength and power were where we could do the most work. And, and you know, you saw that too, and you actually had that peg before you even – started with the uh, testing week. So if I'm looking at rucking and stuff, I can say that that's why Jeremy threw that number out earlier. If you can't squat double body weight, there's there's some tissue shear force issues we're not even addressing before you start rucking. And so that's why when guys come in and they're like, all right, I got selection in 16 weeks, 20 weeks, whatever, yeah. should I start rucking? And we do their first test and one, their movement quality sucks. And movement is the language of performance. I don't care what you're doing. Like if you can't move well, it is going to cost you at some point. So let's fix the movement. Then strength and power take longer to develop. So we'll program that earlier on so they can uh, they can then express it later on without breaking. And I think that's an important thing too in terms of why we structure things the way we do and build and periodize a program, strength first, and then later on turn it into endurance because that's going to keep them moving through their event. And for a tactical athlete, durability is speed. I will say so in the in the what three months since I've been working with yeah you guys, since January yeah yep. um, this is definitely the longest I've gone without an injury that prevents me from doing a movement in the gym um, but uh, oh God, I've got so many questions right now okay um, so <laughs> let's get them so so the first one is like you know when I when I come in here and I'm like hey guys like I want to like I have I have performance goals in mind basically mm -hmm. right like. Um, I want to deadlift X and run a mile in X. Tell them, tell them. I know yeah, what it is. Yeah. I mean, I want to, I want to run, run a 440 mile and deadlift 440 in the same, in the in same, same training session, session within yep. an hour of each other. Um, yep. And so just, just for some, for some more background so we can talk more about like the selection stuff too, yeah. because I'm, when I went to selection, I had never had more than 225 pounds on a barbell mm -hmm. for a squat. I hadn't deadlifted my body weight even. Because I'd never really touched a barbell, mm -hmm. um, and you know, I go to selection, I'll finish top three in every ruck and every run, and mm -hmm. you know, do, do objectively well at the selection, and have absolutely no movement skills. Um, <laughs> to me, like in my mind at the time, I thought that was I thought that was pretty cool. I was like, oh, like I see guys like you know, they make fun of the way that I'm getting ready for selection, and then they go to the gym and they cycle barbell snatches. Um, all day, yeah, and then, yeah. You know, I, I would outperform them at selection, but not because I was maybe a better athlete, but probably because I was relying on other things too much. But I was in constant pain the whole time. Yeah, like, that's that is huge, man. You absolutely hit on um, where I was going to go with it too, in terms of like, okay, so first we've got nature and nurture. You have proven like you don't get to the national level of rowing and these other things without having, having solid aerobics. Yeah, without being <laughs> extremely you know, talented one, you can, you have a, a pain threshold. So you've got the mental game that in selection kind of separates a lot of people. Right. The second thing is, is you have built the ability to go long at a high power output, right? Your aerobic power capacity and ability to express that even with a rucksack on, even though it's not a rower is better than the average bear, no doubt, but you hit on it. Like you were in constant pain. Right. And you've seen with some of the stuff that we've been doing recently is like, 
I'm trying to shore up your chassis. Like I use a car analogy. I'm trying to build your chassis so that you can, one, endure over the course of a career now. Um, but two, you can express that power without being a glass cannon. So that way you don't go all out. You win that ruck, you win that run, and it takes you five days to recover. Um, because that's where I was getting into tactical athletes, I think, do have off-seasons, but they're micro-cycles of off-season. So you get done with, with selection, and you have a little bit of time, but then you start the Q course, and there's more demands. And even in the Q course, it'd be nice to go really biased towards the strength and power end with you, but we can't. We got to do concurrent training, because guess what? Big Sarge is going to throw a PT test at you that can dictate where you get stationed, what language you get, like all these things that you've seen. Do you go to free fall? Do you go to scuba? You know, they want to see a PT test metric may not apply to anything you do in your career, but at the same time, that's what they use. So you got to play both games. And so I'm glad you said that in terms of you were in pain, that sort of thing, but you did really well because a lot of guys do that. And that's where it's hard to argue against some of the training methods that are out there, like do a ton of volume, do a ton of stuff. It's hard to, hard to argue against the other guys who do like competition style CrossFit and then go and crush a selection event. But a lot of times we forget the level that they were at before and we forget there's no valedictorian awards for, for tactical athletes. Okay. So you were saying you won the ruck, you won the, you won these runs or we're Just top three. The guy that creeped in past yep. the time. And the guy who came in at, at his, you know, like 12 mile road march for the army sub three hours. If the audience doesn't know. Um, that's kind of the normal standard. The guy that comes in at 259, 259, wears the same beret and tab. and All got the same hat. Yep, all got the same hat. So that's the balance. And when I look at things just holistically, I think tactical athletes have a different focus than competition athletes, right? Competition athletes know when and where they can peak. Tactical athletes sometimes get that luxury if you're in a training pipeline or some other things. Other times throughout the career, it's not as pretty. Um, you know, in a sport, we know the demands of the sport. We know what people are going to do. We, there are clearly defined rules. Tactical athletes, a lot of the times, is you're given handrails and told to figure it out. So those are a little bit different. And then there's no stats. You know, you, you may have done really well in your class, top three, comparatively. But from an absolute perspective, I'd like to see where you ranked on all time for all those things. And I bet you'd be up there. But you don't get a valedictorian award behind yeah. you. Everyone's quick, and now your time is like, oh, you barely made the cut. <laughs> yeah, and that's where that's where I think it's a different thing. And a lot of times, I do have to take my tactical athletes who were prior sport athletes and shift that mindset. Sometimes the right answer is good enough, because at the absolute ends of performance is not better performance; it's illness and injury. Right. When we chase that spectrum, and this is where I do disagree with the CrossFit concept of the you know fitness health paradigm, is on one end of the scale they have like sickness, and then it's a you know a curve, and it says fitness on the other end. The problem is the more you pursue fitness or quote unquote, the closer you are to injury or illness. There's a sweet spot. So sometimes there is good enough. Sometimes there is um, going to an event, and I've I've had this conversation recently with Jacob. Like going to an event at 90% of your peak capacity, but feeling great is huge for a tactical athlete. Absolutely huge yeah. because then you can perform and pain is the number one inhibitor of performance. Mental or physical, it's going to shut you down. I think one of the things I was thinking about the other day, this kind of analogy that I look at when I see the difference between my cross athletes and the tactical athletes, like 
performance versus build. Um, when I see an athlete that does really well and comes back to us, like, hey, I crushed the selection, they're injury-free, or you're talking about, you did really well, but kind of hurt the entire time, it didn't phase them. Um, they're kind of ready for anything. PT test comes up, maybe a two-week kind of prep for that, and they're good to go. When I think of, like, a, a performance athlete, I think of, like, a top-fuel funny car, right? Lots of time on the dyno, training for the metrics that they need to get to, and then so what that would look like for the athlete is training sessions leading to sets, reps, volume that you can get. And then your competition is that one time down the drag strip where you're peaked, everything's hopefully working 100%, and you fuck, you go, and the engine blows, right, at the very end. You can't use it again, and that's when we deload the athlete. So when I look at, like, a tactical athlete, the build is just there. Like, you're always going to be going. You can, you're ready for everything. Like I said, 90% efforts, kind of peak power, and you can do really well and mentally be okay. Our CrossFit slash performance athletes, we train, train, train on the dyno for that one event on that weekend, and they're going to be a peak performance. But after that, they need like a week and a half to two weeks of like, just go sit on a bike and, and cycle because like, because you expended all of your power. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'll tell you, like, we absolutely do focus on the event at hand if an athlete is in a pipeline, right? If someone is going to a selection event and then going through a pipeline, we absolutely do factor that in. But even when I'm doing that, and even like right now with you, since we've got a little bit of time where you're at in your career to work on what you want, and there's no like driving thing right now, I'm still looking at the big picture, right? So what's going to, what you are selected for, and this is also a completely polar opposite thing from competition athletes, what you're selected for, meaning your ability to run around the woods with a ruck on and find some little spots and all those <laughs> other things and not quit, right? Um, what you were selected for in that regard that tool at that time is not what keeps you on a team for the long haul. And it's a, it's a confusing thing for a lot of athletes because, you know, they get through um, selection and they get through the Q course and they're say the guys who are more predisposed to endurance and just gutting stuff out. And then they get to their first team. And a lot of times they're, I know I early on was exposed to this was what got me there is not what is going to keep me there. I was going to absolutely ask that because, you know, you go, you look at any, you Google the phrase tactical athlete, mm-hmm. you get, you know, a laundry list of people that are publishing plans, whatever. And, and the selection plan is always different than the plan for, you know, guys that, that yep. are on teams, want to be tactical yeah. athletes, whatever. Um, and, you know, so we can talk about being a tactical athlete on the way to selection. And obviously where I'm at now, I'm past that. And I'm more interested in, what is the work I'm going to be doing to be you know, a valuable member of my team? Yep. And that's, that's where we have to get into subjective and objective needs. Okay. So, you know, having done this for almost 20 years in the field and having seen it across all different elements of soft, like there are two different sides of that coin. So obviously there are the objective measures. Um, now with where you're getting into, when you want to go to a school, let's say you want to go to SCUBA. There are certain things that you will have to pass to go to dive school, objectively, right? You will have to have your run times under probably 38. You will have to have all of your PT scores, your, your Uber scores at a certain level, objectively. But then you're going to go to your team and you're going to have a, you know, a, a pre-mission train up. You're going to have some other thing, which is drastically different. You're going to have to wear a kit for eight to 10 hours at a time. You're going to have to do multiple CQB runs back to back to back to back. You're going to have to do all these other things where it's periods of, um, interspersed high intensity and high stress, and then long periods of boredom in between. 
And so we have to do both. And that's where some people will say there's never an off season for tactical athletes. But I will say you can, you can periodize your, um, the majority of your training towards certain themes. So if we know you're going to scuba school, the good thing is we can now set a date on a wall and we can say, Hey, we can train up to that. At the same time, if you're just doing general maintenance training, we need to get you because I know your numbers. We need to get your strength and power higher because you're going to be going on to a team that has guys that are a foot taller than you. And I mean, one of my other guys right now, 6'6", 260, prior A&M lineman in SF, you're going to be on that guy's team and expect to do the same things. And that's another difference in the terms of if you were in football, you'd be positioned. You'd be doing position. He's a lineman, right? You'd be more of a defensive back or receiver. You're doing drastically different things. Because of the job demands, we have to get you doing ends to middle approach. You're really good at endurance, but your strength and power are your relative limiters. We need to pull you more towards the middle now. And then shift back to that once we get there. So I think the the selection prep aspect of it is when we talked about kind of the closer you get to performance, the more you get closer to injury and sickness. Similar concept. I think when people are getting ready to go selection, it's something I hit on, or at least I think in the back of my mind, but I don't tell them. Like the closer you get, you're going to get closer to injury. And it's kind of like a, a game you have to play when it comes to recovery and health and nutrition. If you're getting ready to go selection, you have to put in certain miles. Or if you're getting ready to go dive, so you have to be swimming a certain amount. With that intensity and volume, maybe comes injury, but it's kind of a trade-off you're like willing to accept. Yeah, so I mean, like Jeremy was saying, like the known demands for that are different than you know a lot of people who are really focused on pipelines and selection processes. And I think people do forget that because you you hit it right on the head. I'm obviously a business owner as well. So I see that um, when people Google tactical athlete, a lot of times it will be the first things that pop up are blanket programs to get people ready for a known event, SFAS, BUDS, you know, any of the pipeline things, uh, RASP, you throw it out there. And the... I won't say the value, but I will say the appeal there is that a lot of times they're written by guys who have done it. And so they know the demands of the event. What's not factored into the whole plan with um, regards to a, a human doing that is you are coming from a high level rowing background in endurance prime. So for you, if, if I could just pick one of the ones that will probably come up first, first time Google search. A lot of times it's built for people who don't have that background. So there may be some strength maintenance. There may be some, some postural correction, correction stuff in there. But a lot of times it's not necessarily built for someone of your caliber um, of endurance background. So therefore, you now spend more time working on what you're good at and not shoring up weaknesses in your game. And that's where the balance of individualization comes in because had we started before you ever went to selection, I can't tell you what the program would have looked like because it would have been based off your assessment and stuff like that. But when I am assessing a tactical athlete to go into a pipeline, it's different than going onto a team. And when I'm, I'm looking at them going into a pipeline, like I already hit on, like movement is the language of performance. If I'm looking at someone and they don't move well, that's going to be prioritized. So I need more time to get that person moving well before I ever add on horsepower. And then conversely, if I've got someone, a athlete, 
pick a team sport athlete, football player, someone like moves really well, but are not used to being going dark, we may have to prioritize that a little bit more. And that's where the individualization piece comes in. Um, because a lot of my tactical athletes, especially uh, the ones that are in the military going to a selection event, a lot of times I use the term they're highly trained, they're not highly athletic. Okay, so I, I don't have a problem telling them to go dark because they're like, I know I'm going to put on a rucksack and run for miles on end. It's going to hurt. I can do that. And it's like, cool, let me see you lunge and let me see your just ankle dorsiflexion. Let me see your your hip extension. Let me see some of these other primal movement patterns and they can't achieve them. And I would be doing them a disservice if I just layered on more dysfunction. So, uh, one of my athletes, I, we'll talk about who he is afterwards, but you probably know who he is. But um, squat, stiffest angles in the world. Hips, super tight. Can't get into a proper squat to save his life. Dude has gone through the best selections you could possibly go to in the military and like pass him with flying colors because he can ruck really well. He can go dark and he can just yeah. keep going. Uh, but then it's like, hey man, I need you to squat 135 pounds like properly. And he's like, man, this is gonna take a lot out of me, like mm-hmm. central nervous wise or central nervous system wise, because he has to focus so much on it and it just crushes them. Yep, and that's that's where I think the the difference in with tactical athletes. I've, I've used the term before, like they're never minimal, rarely maximal, but they always have to be optimal. And what I mean by that is like you can't go to a pipeline event or go to your team and be the guy. You can't be the guy on the bottom. You may pass, but there's a beautiful thing called peers in selection events. And there's the team room talks that will happen. If you are the low man on the totem pole, like you have to perform. But at the same time, I will say it 14 deployments. I've never done a max effort lift on a target, (laughs) right? I've never done a maximal effort sprint into target. You move at an optimal level on which you can think and engage. And that is the same for a selection event because guys who are really fast make really big mistakes before they recognize their land nav error. Guys who, you know, are really fit will default to fitness instead of thinking. And so that is a compensation that we want to get rid of. We want it to be optimized. And so that's the the difference I take in the individualized approach to training. And so when I do see someone coming to us to start a pipeline event and they have a high level CrossFit background, yeah, they're not going to be barbell cycling before they go to an event. I know they can do that on their worst day. And more important, transfer of training or transfer of training is more important than anything else. So does that barbell cycling transfer to the selection event they're about to get into? Absolutely not. So now I'm wasting their recovery ability. I'm building in a pattern that doesn't matter. It might boost their ego a little bit, but it's not going to get them to pass outright. So let me let me ask you this. <clears throat> I walked in here like three months ago, back in January, and if I had said I you know I don't have any tactical aspirations whatsoever. Uh, I'm just a guy who wants to be uh, as strong as possible and as fast as possible, like. Get me to my deadlift and running goal as fast as you can versus, uh, hey, I, I want to do this, but I also have a job and mm-hmm. I want to be I want to be really good at it. Um, and I, I were to follow those two paths for five years based on your programming. What what differences would I would you expect me to see as an athlete sticking with those programs over the long term? So, we, we could generalize that even a little bit more like 
um, programming for sport or programming for readiness, like mm-hmm. we talked about. Um, I think one, it starts <clears throat> with you have a goal, right? So if your goal is a 440, 440 in one day and one training hour, like it's kind of when you sit down with the coach and Chris will get into it with your programming, like there's kind of the realization of if you're training for readiness for your job, there is, hey, it's going to maybe take a little bit longer because you have to balance the two. But then also on your end, there has to be a kind of a realization that one will pull from the other. When we talk about like concurrent training, like we can train concurrently and, and keep things kind of balanced. But it's the idea of when people say they want to build strength and all of a sudden they complain that their two-mile time dropped 20 seconds. It's like comparatively, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> But you can't kind of you have to kind of pick and choose versus performance. If you were to come in and you're like, hey, I want to attack this goal, everything in your program is built kind of towards that. Yeah, that's the benefit of a sport athlete and and knowing the demands of the sport, or even if it's a objective, like you were saying, like you have two objective goals that you want, 440, 440 in the same training session. And you know, we could even even put a little more skin in the game and say by this date. Like I want it by this date, not just throw so it like out a there. Smart goal, like a specific right. goal. So that's that's the difference with the tactical athletes. We have a layer of uncertainty, you know. Even even in terms of the pipeline that you go through, a lot of people will um, say, "Okay, you got to ruck and you got to do those other things." A lot of people forget about jumping in a pit with a phone pole, you know, a, phone, a telephone pole, and getting smoked for hours. I see you smiling right now. A lot of people forget about playing Legos with certain contraptions during certain types of events. And I don't want to give too much away um, to protect the process, but they forget those are demands. So that's where with a tactical athlete, we have to do much more concurrent training. We can't necessarily give up your endurance background and let it go completely um, by the wayside because we need to keep that as a relative strength because it may get called upon at any given point. The same thing with a sport athlete or I should say the opposite applies to a sport athlete. If I know you want 440, 440 within, let's say, six months, I am going to throw away everything else that is a distractor and a competing demand. So if I'm trying to completely change your fiber typing because of your endurance background and get you to more of a strength power profile and let you gut it out for a mile, sub five minutes, that's different than if I need to keep an aerobic base built because you may get called upon to run a five miler. The, that's where I was getting at objective and subjective. You may get to your team soon and you have a powerlifting team sergeant and his goal of a good workout session for the team is to go in and squat bench and dead baby. And if you're not hitting certain numbers, he's going to call you out. Guess what? That's not an objective thing. That's not on any FM. That's not on anywhere else. But if you're not hacking it according to the team sergeant's subjective needs, you might be going to a different yeah, you team. Be that team you, might be going, you might be going back to a B team, you know, and I've had other guys the other way around. They are absolutely phenomenal lifters on their worst day. They can hit some damn near world-class numbers on stuff. It's pretty impressive to see. And then they get to a team and their team sergeant is an all American 10 mile runner. Good to see it. Yeah. So you have to have both. And that's where the individualized approach comes in a little bit because we have to play that game. That's just one of those things that comes with it. You're never going to get an NFL player who shows up to the Steelers and he's a, you know, all American center. And they're like, yep, we're going out for a 10 K run on Saturday. You better keep up. You don't have that in sport, right? You don't have that. You don't have those things. Now let's talk about you for real. So when I look at your numbers and we're saying, I've got true coach up right now, your last set of mile intervals 
You did five miles. Your slowest one was a 558. You got progressively faster, 545, 537, 525, and 515, three weeks into a training cycle. When I see that, your 440 mile isn't scaring me that much. I know we're going to get there. Your deadlift and your power clean, you've actually been shooting up on those as well. So when I start to trend the data points of each workout, we're going in the right direction. And I also don't feel at risk because you're sleeping well, you're eating well, there's no pain right now. There's no anything that's showing me we're going too much to the other end of the spectrum too fast. And that's kind of how I balance the two. So when I lay out your program, I'm prioritizing stuff earlier in the week that fit your goals. And then later on in the week, as as local and global fatigue set in, it's going to kind of trend off a little bit. But that's fine because even your cleans on Friday on your dynamic effort days, really good. You know, so that's it's trending in the right direction. If I looked at it and I saw your running times dropping, but also saw your strength and power stuff dropping, I could adjust the knobs a little bit of volume and intensity on your running to let your strength stuff improve. I think if you remember back when you probably first started with this in January, I'm sure Chris asked like, where are you at right now in the process? And people kind of think that's like a conversation starter piece. Well, for both of us, I think it, it, what it really is is to find out what your job demands are so your readiness stays ready. <laughs> so if I ask you, like, oh, I'm getting ready to start the Q course. In my notes in True Coach, I put probably on through a five-mile at some point, probably on through a 12-mile rug just for to cross off the list, right, in a PT test. So when he starts programming these miles, power cleans, deadlifts, all this stuff, I always revert back to the notes. I wrote, like, here's what their job demands are. Do I think they can check off each of these? And if at any point I feel we go down one too far one direction, like you're chasing that deadlift too much, I hold back or I'll throw a tester like, hey, just do this five mile on Saturday and see where it's at. Mm-hmm. And if it's passing, then we can keep going. Or if it's, I mean, those five, 15 miles, like that's way ahead of what you need to be at. So it's kind of like one of those like, okay, like we're, we can still continue going on the right path because you're not sacrificing too much of your readiness. And that's where – you know, each, like, like I've said before on some other podcasts, like each workout is a data point. It's my job to connect the dots for you because you can put all those in and be like, hell yeah, I hit, you know, whatever five fifteen mile on that last thing. And then on Friday, four days later, I hit, uh, I don't know, 400 pound deadlift or whatever. You just pick a number, a, a thing. Cool. Well, your goal is to do them in the same session. So that doesn't equate necessarily to the same thing. So if you look at like, I've got Taylor, you know, Jeremy can't see this right now, but I've got him running mile repeats um, on session A on a Monday. Session B, he's working up to a heavy power clean. In traditional training literature, you don't see that. They would lose their mind. Right? Because, <laughs> because once again, those are two competing demands relatively, and we're doing some damage control there by splitting them and, and knowing your capability. And if you were a novice athlete coming in, I would absolutely not do that. Um, but knowing your goal and your focus, I can dose appropriately. And once again, at the third week of this cycle, you're still trending up, like trending better. That's huge to me. We're still going to back you off a little bit because I see some other things in there in some of your subjective notes that tell me, okay, maybe we're right at overreaching. I don't want to go to overtraining. And so, you know, like I'm very happy with where you're at. One thing that a lot of people forget about, too, and the difference between sport athletes and tactical athletes is this. One, we've got the Rona going on right now. We've got the Rona is getting in the way. We can't have you max out because of your garage gym right now, right? You you cap out on weight, so we have to switch to bands. We have to switch to other things. 
stimulus might not be exactly what I want, but it's in the same, it's within a certain degree of variance from what we're looking for. Tactical athletes typically default to one of two things, in my experience. They keep doing what they really are good at because it doesn't expose their ego, or they only do what they're bad at because they've got a psychological hang up on, I can't have a weakness. Pain is weakness leaving the body, all these other th- you know cliches that don't necessarily apply. So they only do what they're bad at, and they typically induce compensation patterns that don't translate to long-term performance. They break, or now their strength, which for you would be cardio stuff, becomes a weakness. And now we suck at everything. <laughs> so we don't want to do that. So something I have to deal with with, one, corona locking down a lot of the gyms right now, but two, a lot of my athletes who are deployed and have limited access to equipment is I have to do damage control training, make the worst situation bearable, make the situation dictated by lack of equipment, lack of training space, lack of adequate nutrition. Sometimes when we're overseas or in in certain training events, I have to minimize that impact while doing the best we can to sometimes maintain, not to mention peak. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a trade-off that we make and something that I take athlete to athlete. So... When I, when I hear like uh, the way that you guys describe what you want to see from your tactical athletes and, and you guys are describing, you know, limiters that I see from everyone I work with, um, you know, when I walk in here, I still want I mean, I'm 25. I'm not the, the most mature person in the whole world, but like I walk in here and I'm like, I want to be a performance athlete. Like mm-hmm. I want to see like my numbers get way better. Like I was doing two and three a days when I was rowing. Like, why can't like, come on, like throw me some two and three a days. Like mm-hmm. he's been itching for him. Yeah. Like, been itching. Yeah. And you know, I, I write you a novel pretty much every workout I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm positive that some of it is you're just like, look, man, I'm not, I'm not even going to touch this. Like, I'm just going to keep giving you work. Cause you're keep getting better. Like you yep. keep getting better. So I don't need to dignify some of the things that I like constantly want. Um, but in, in the back of my mind is the idea that like, you know, if I run a 440 mile, that might achieve my goal. And, you know, I weigh 185 pounds, like running a 440 at 185 is, is not something I thought I was going to be doing even when I was rowing. Um, but like there, you know, there, there are girls in high school who can run a 440 mile. Mm-hmm. So like, to me, it just doesn't seem like that fast. But they're not power so, clean. Yeah, so that broke. gets into the, idea of like, <laughs> the one argument people have in the sport of CrossFit, which is like, if you look at like a high level, we'll take you for example, right? 440 deadlift, 440 mile, and you probably throw down like a 632K probably still on a rower at least. Um, like if you look at, if you look at powerlifting, that's a, it's just, it's an average deadlift, right? It's a 440 is a, a, a high school girl could probably beat you in a mile type thing. Yeah. Um, probably some Olympic rowers can probably row faster than that 630. <laughs> But you put all those together in one training session in an hour, it's like, this is different, right? Like, this is pretty solid. And that's the argument with, with CrossFit. It comes like performance athletes. Like, I think we're now getting to a point in sport where you're seeing new grounds getting broke or like dudes are snatching 295, 300 at the games. And then the same turnaround, they're doing 80 unbroken chest of the bar and then they're going to run a a sub 17 minute 5k <laughs> and it's just all those numbers comparatively eh. but you put them all together and it's like geez that's like quite the performance athlete you have um yeah and that's where i think we gotta we have to talk about 
some of the unwritten things right now, like with, with your programming in terms of, I know you want to reach these objective goals for you. And they're probably more psychological than they are physical, just because you pick numbers that, that are kind of cool and can go with them. You know, um, I've done it before too. Mine was six and six, 600 pound deadlift, sub six mile within 60 minutes. So I've done that and I've seen, I've got that physical and mental goal checked off and it was cool, but there's a cost to everything that we do. And right now with where you're going, we cannot get you injured, right? We cannot break you. And that is the balance of more volume, more training and everything else right now that comes at an adaptation currency cost. you got a lot of it right now, but you can sleep. You can, yeah. you can uh, recover with it, you know, yeah, might be a good a thing. <laughs> but the trade-off in terms of you're now sacrificing sleep for performance, you're now tra- sacrificing recovery to get another training session in, those things while the course was still going full steam ahead, that's all different, um, different costs. But if the end result is illness or injury, we, you don't pay the bills anymore. And so that's the trade-off is with tactical athletes, it's different from sport athletes because with sport athlete, this is a difference that you, to your original question, in five to seven years for a lot of the high level sport athletes, a lot of, a lot of times it takes five years to get them to the elite level. Like mine at the higher level right now, we've been training five to seven years. Those athletes are different because if they get hurt or injured or whatever, they don't go to their event. If you get hurt, injured, especially in certain pipelines, you literally change your career, you lose your job, and sometimes you only get one shot, and the risk-to-benefit ratio is much different. So that's why we aren't going super aggressive when we put some of those things in. But yeah, you know, like I've kind of met you in the middle on some of those things. Okay, like we'll add some more training sessions in, we'll add some other stuff, but let's be smart about it. Um, And that's where I think you've been pretty good in terms of you balance it out with your own recovery and other means. I think it's always interesting too when people ask for more volume and when we follow like kind of like 10% rule, like don't increase volume, but more than 10% um, reduce injury rates. Like people are always asking for more volume until it's too much and you get injured, right? Like you always feel good until you don't type thing. Like, and I always tell people that like want to do something on a rest day. It's like, Hey, it's a rest day. Like I really just want to go do so. I feel great. It's like you feel great until you do that thing that you're not supposed to be doing not using your adaptation currency properly, you're in the gym when you're not supposed to. And now all of a sudden we go to train your mile repeats on a day you're supposed to be super fresh. And now you're hitting 550, 555, 50, 605. Where's your kind of like your head at in terms of like your goals and it just doesn't line up. And um, I think that's something I see a lot of is like, hey, I want more, I want more, I want more. And it's like, you want more until when I'm putting together all the tonnage you're lifting, all the miles you're putting in, like if I give you more, then you're not going to feel good. And that's what we talk about. Like looking out in five years, performance athletes, they have to get to a certain goal. Like we know at this point with enough data, what people have to get to to make it to sanctionals and the games. When we talked about earlier in the podcast, how the kind of metrics are unknown. The number one thing is going to be ready and, and injury free. So. And that's where, you know, that readiness thing comes back into play. Like, you, you're chasing those certain objective goals um, right now with where you're at in your career, which are completely fine. But you're also ready to go do a UBR if they threw one at you. You're ready to go do a PT test. So we're okay with that. Though sport athletes, in terms of performance, at certain times a year, they completely disregard certain types of training because the sport demands it. We don't have that luxury with you. 
you know, so that you ask like, what's the difference in what you're doing now in five years? Like with a sport athlete, we will intentionally sacrifice health. I'm going to say that we will intentionally sacrifice health and longevity for a sport goal. You know, a lot of our higher level competition athletes, they come off these big events, Wadapalooza being a recent one. You know, we've got some other ones in the works pending the Rona. Um, and so they want to really dial in for that. And there's a very certain um, level of volume and intensity that we need for three to five days on end. And then they can completely take a month off, walk away from the sport, do nothing at all. You don't get that luxury. You also have to, once again, be ready versus compete for whatever else throws at you. So right now, you've, you've got a pretty good life schedule with, with where you're at in the course. When you get to a team, there's no notice deployments, there's no notice demands, there's rapid, rapid things that come up to fill a task or whatever, where you just don't have the luxury of completely switching gears. And if we went all in on your strength and power, per se, and they're like, cool, you're going to Afghanistan, no notice, you know, September 12th, 2001, and you're going to be doing long foot infills as a power lifter. Yeah, you don't have that luxury. So that's the balance that we try and get. And like, no matter what we're doing, whether it's a pipeline or whether it's career longevity, I'm always balancing two things, economy of motion, like how well you move and economy of effort, right? So the difference would be um, if you are moving really well, let's say on rowing, like, oh, I've got a good, good pull right back to my catch. Nothing else is, is impeding my movement, but you are pulling every single stroke. Like it's a max effort deadlift. That's a problem, right? Conversely, if you've got a world-class deadlift and you're not, you know, pulling on the erg like you're supposed to, it's not going to be a good balance. That applies to everything else we do. So when I have an athlete getting ready to go a selection process and they're not moving well, let's say they've got postural problems, right? They've got an engine for days, but as soon as we put a rucksack on and their lower back is weak and they bend forward at the waist and they're, they're now compressing their diaphragm and their lungs and they're having venous return issues to the heart, that's not a conditioning issue. That's a that's an economy of movement issue. The other part is with a strength and power athlete, there's a trade-off. Every time I compress my muscle, let's say I'm doing an air squat, there if I squeeze that muscle, there should still be a level of flow in and out. But if someone is so strength and power dominant, they do an air squat, but it completely occludes flow, now they've got a delivery problem. So I can't completely go on either end of that spectrum, like 100%, because I'm going to cost them delivery. And that's the, the trade-off that I'm trying with you, okay? So we've got you moving well, I would say. Like, I'm really happy with some of the stuff we're seeing, your cleans and, and your um, lifts are going well. And then you've still got your delivery right where we need it to be. <laughs> but if we really went all in on that deadlift, I don't know what it would cost you on your conditioning end because just one pull, or I'm sorry, like say on the rower, if you are pulling – and you completely occlude at the quads, now you've lost your efficiency. And with the tactical athletes, I'm always trying to balance those. With my sport athletes, sometimes I have to go so far on the end of the spectrum where their weakness is because they need that for the sport. And that's the difference in how I look at it. For a sport athlete, I'm like, what's going to keep you from winning? For a tactical athlete, I'm like, what's going to keep you from doing your job? And they're two different things. And a lot of times when we talk about the biopsychosocial model, my tactical athletes impede their own performance more because of the culture, right? It's, it's cool to not sleep. It's a yeah. badge of honor to be like, yeah, man, I just slept four hours last night. 
it's a cultural thing to be like, all right, we're going to go out and have a, have a few beers with the boys tonight. So that's where the tactical crowd does shoot themselves in the foot, pun fully intended, um, because the culture doesn't support high performance because they're good enough. So it's, it's, there's no cookie cut answer. It's really hard to balance the two, but that's part of the goal of, of working with our individual athletes. And then just from the programming perspective, it's something we talked about right before we press record, but the little things like nutrition, mindset, going throughout the week and how much your attention you're paying to that. We can have the same athlete that has a 440 deadlift goal and a 440 mile in the same training session. You're very good at it from what we were talking about. Um, when it comes to nutrition, sleep, all those kind of things when we tie in the whole training model. Um, your volume may look different from someone who doesn't do those things because they're stuck in the whole like, like oh, four hours of sleep, I grind, like hard work never stops, go out and drink with the boys because I'm cool like that. Like The training volume differs from a coaching perspective just based on that alone because how much you're able to recover. And I always tell people the more you get towards peak performance, the more dialed in everything has to be. For I have, if I have an athlete, a tactical athlete who's just like GPP, just doing generalized things, like sure, dude, like do whatever you want, but you're going to stay like this. And this may be a seven-minute mile. You're passing. You're kind of doing everything. But when you want to get towards peak performance, these outside kind of entities like really matter more because it's going to distract you from your goal. So if you're eating garbage, if you're not sleeping well, if you're not kind of getting our, like you talked about, the mindset kind of going into the gym, when you look at a workout, kind of what playlist, all those little things, when you look at high-performance athletes, they pay attention to those little things because then it sets them up to train better. Which you've done before. You yeah, know, true. You've well, absolutely done before. The, the I was going to say that the thing that I think I've learned most by going to, I mean, what are like six sessions a week or something mm-hmm. that we're at right now for me, like, <clears throat> like every single one of those sessions, like I only have six sessions a week to, to be improving myself. Like, you know, if I had 12 or 13 sessions a week when I was rowing, like I would throw out garbage sessions all the time. Like, mm-hmm. like, look, I just don't even have it in my brain to focus on like the way I'm putting this ore in the water today. Um, but I mean, I, I think that some of the sessions that you've been throwing at me recently have been really creative about mixing like weight and, and speed. So like the, the front squats into a 400 meter sprint and then like, you know, do a 85 percent effort run followed by, you know, a short AMRAP followed by a hundred percent effort run. Like those have been really interesting challenges for me to figure out how do I make the most of that session? Like it's, what is my warm up going to look yeah. like? What is my, it's something we talk about from a coaching development standpoint where it's like more isn't better, better is better, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> sure. You're going to build in volume and whatnot, but if you're doing the right things at a proper intensity, proper kind of workout flow, like, that can crush someone like you who can really turn on some aerobic power um, versus like just doing endless volume because, oh, well, we need to run more, so we need to put in 10 miles a week. Yeah, and I think that goes to um, your background. So when I structure your training program, that's part of the reason I look at your training history, sporting profile background, the things you've done. And when we talk about polarizing training to create adaptation, Um, we have to change what you have done before because your body is used to that. And the further you get towards any end of the spectrum, the elite end of rowing and endurance, the less adaptation we're going to get from doing similar things. And so we have to polarize your training to a degree to create adaptation. But once again, we're not trying to completely 
flip you like polar opposite, light everything on fire. When we talk about adaptation, you know, I've heard the analogy before, like we're just trying to turn on the burner a little bit to, to get the fire alarm to go off. We're not trying to burn the house down. And so that's the thing. Like we have to create a, an alarm response in your body to create adaptation curves. So if I'm trying to balance those two things, like just enough stimulus, so I don't break you or whatever. Um, but at the same time, switch it from what you've done before. That's why you are going to higher quality sessions, less of them. Let's flip that around. I've got a lot of football players, baseball players, team sport athletes who are used to doing 15 to 30 second sprints with about a minute and a half off in between plays um, for their entire sporting career. And then it's like, okay, but I need you to go for four to six hours on some of these rucks and you've never gone 40 minutes straight. For them, I may microdose longer sessions. So they may have 12 sessions a week, 40 minutes per session. And it's like, hey, I need you to get up to 40 minutes right now on Monday and Tuesday. Wednesday, we're going for an hour and a half, whatever. And I may dose that differently because they've never gone there before. But when I bring them back around and I'm like, hey, on your worst day, what do you clean? And they're like, oh, I'll, you know, clean 315 or bench three wheels, bro. Like, that's the difference depending on the demands of the job or the sport, however you want to look at it based on training history, injury history, athletic profile, and just their natural dominance. So kind of like you hit on and you, you've, you're naturally uh, able to pick on some, pick up on some of the nuances that I'm using with you, which has been extremely awesome to me because as a coach, a lot of people forget that I develop myself as a coach when I get that feedback. And when I talk to athletes who have a really good intuition, so some of my athletes, nothing wrong with it, just put in their results. Like, just put in their results. Some of them do that once a week. Some of them are like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Here's what I got. But if I'm trying to modify your training in real time and make sure we're training correctly, subjective things help too. Like, when you put what you felt on your last mile, lungs were my limiter, legs were my limiter. When you put in on something like that last run in that session you mentioned before, like, here's what I, what I met, here's my, my limiter – that lets me see if what I'm trying to dose is working. And a lot of people think about it in terms of sets and reps. Like I quit thinking about sets and reps years ago because it's, it's time under tension or, or kind of significant tension. And that applies to conditioning as well. It's also every workout is an energy system workout, right? So if you're, if you're benching, you're still using energy and how I'm trying to get you to use that energy with the time domains and the short rest cycles and some of the other things will transfer to other areas of performance whether you get it or not. There are certain things that I'm trying to change in your tension profile as a rower who for years did a bunch of hip extension and pulling with your upper body. But you didn't balance that out other ways. So I can create a structural change in your tension profile, front to back, push to pull, that will clean up your economy of motion in running. That will then transfer to a better clean because you can get into a front rack better and some other things. And I don't like that. But in my mind, that's what I'm thinking, and that's what I'm hoping works. And full disclosure, no one will put this into like textbooks and stuff because they're afraid to say, I don't know what this many sets, this many reps of this thing will do because humans are complex systems, right? Space shuttle, complicated system. One O-ring goes wrong and it explodes. Humans are complex systems. You can you lose a leg, lose an organ, and still live a long, healthy life. So for people to act like they have this linear, you know, mechanistic understanding of humans is kind of laughable to me. But at the same time, you know, a lot of athletes don't 
understand that and are like, hey, we've been working out for X period of time. Why don't I have my goal yet? Why haven't I seen this amount of progress? And it's back to that whole thing of, hey, I'm looking at the big picture. I'm saying we can do this safely, healthy, and do it over the long haul as opposed to a short-term gain in performance that will cost you a rotator cuff, cost you something else. And that's always the balance I'm having with athletes. But you've got a really good intuition of saying, like, I kind of see where we're going here, some of the deeper things. Sometimes when you write the, the, the novels on Sunday and stuff, I like that. I don't always yeah, have the time I, to get back to them, but I like that. I personally like it when it adds in the subjective portion of your training and what people don't realize versus the athlete that just kind of puts in a number saying, like, here's the weight I got. Um, when we get closer to a deload week, the first thing that generally goes when you go from overreaching to overtraining is your willingness to train. And so oftentimes what I see when it's ready to give an athlete a deload is they hit the numbers I expect them to hit, but then it's like, man, I just kind of felt off today. I didn't really feel motivated. didn't really feel like I was kind of in control of the weight, like stuff like that. It's like maybe we're getting near that overtraining. You back off for two days, three days, and also now come Sunday, you're like, dude, I feel ready. I feel like ready to go. And that subjective information for us, like, is the world. And so it makes programming for athletes, like either kind of paying attention to the workouts, paying attention to the stimulus and how you're feeling throughout the day, super easy and fun to do. I'm going to give you a a verbatim note here, Jeremy, from from Taylor. Um, After we did one of those Wednesday sessions where we did a bunch of airdyne work, uh, you know, switched to run because of the Rona. Um, Then like a gymnastics flow working on a bunch of shoulder girdle, Stability. Okay. Um, feeling connections being made where the straight arm isn't all about keeping the arm straight, but making sure that the shoulder joint and trunk are really, really anchor the arm. Perfect. Yeah. A lot of times this is what, what I'll get back from that. Arms are feeling pretty good these days. Or this one. Shoulder well, pain's gone. Yeah. When that's the goal, my favorite yeah. is that was pretty easy. Yeah. Like if you really get in touch with it, like you probably describing that and focusing on that now made that slight work a little bit more challenging because you're doing it properly and you're moving properly. It's my favorite when I work on percentage work with athletes when it comes to a power clean. Hey, 65% for X amount of minutes, just do two reps. Man, yeah. that, was, that was really easy. That was kind of boring. And then you like watch the video and they're like half-assing the rep up to their shoulder, half-assing the overhead. It's like, if you like really focus in, and we, this is when we start talking about like neuromuscular efficiency, but you really focus in like on that rep, that all of a sudden became a completely different workout because you're not just half-assing and you're moving properly and everything's like working well. Yep, and that's, mean, that's huge. When when I go to like think about these, I mean, like we were talking before we started this, like I feel like I care way too much about you know the way that the way that I do these workouts. I spend too much time thinking about you know when am I going to eat my snack earlier in the day so my stomach doesn't hurt when I'm running. You know, how am I going to warm up so that I can sprint and front squat at the same time? Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that. But, um, you know, when it comes to this, it's like, I, I know that unless I give you guys the, a window into this workout, like I'm a, I'm a remote, I'm a remote athlete. Like mm-hmm. you guys don't see me ever. Like, yep. That's tough. Right. That's tough. The more information from remote athletes, I need to make it feel like I'm with you. And that's, that's huge in terms of, it really helps me dial stuff in now, like candidly, Corona is throwing off the plan that I had for you and the overarching, like, has to, yeah. And that's where, that's where we can't control this, but what we, what we need to focus on is, is triaging, like triaging what we need to keep 
right? Your postural stability, not necessarily your strength, because that'll kind of maintain and you're training the residual training effect from strength is much longer. But we need to keep you moving like you're moving right now, back when you had full gym access and all the other stuff. We're not going to be able to hit your deadlift on the high end, but we can keep your nervous system primed. We can keep your body ready to do that. So when we get back to it, or on days where you get access to a gym with a little more weight, you're ready to go. Back to readiness, not necessarily peak performance. And this is a good example of the same same concepts I use when people are deployed. Like I've got some people who are deployed right now, and they're getting shifted to these outstations where, one, they've got a an amazing gym, world-class facility. You're jealous of the gym they have deployed. And they're like, hey, for the next three weeks, I'm going to an outstation. And I've got, literally, I've got a trash can that I can use as a sled. And I can fill it with sand. I've got sandbags and a rucksack. Okay. It's, it's a little bit more about triaging need and then dosing appropriately as opposed to chasing those peak performance numbers. And I've seen that on the other end eat people up. Right? You're very... You're very intuitive about these things. You're very psychologically in tune with your body. Um, some people just aren't, frankly. They're like, felt good, felt bad, don't know. But that other, the, the flip side of your coin is when you can't get those workout sessions in because of work and life and other stuff, there could be a tendency in some athletes to let that eat them up. Like, I'm failing, I'm, I'm, I'm backsliding into whatever has to be a balance, right? That biopsychosocial thing. So we got to balance that out. And that is where sometimes it may be, I will give an athlete a little bit more leeway and say, okay, do what you want to do today. You want to smash yourself? That's fine. Go today. Get that mental hit of what you feel that you need and let's dial it back in after that. Because we got to have both. I will never sit here and say that I, I am all knowing and can program for someone really far out. It just doesn't work that way. We're humans. So a lot of times it's a discussion and a dialogue that I have with athletes and they're like, hey, I need some, I need the pain cave this week. I need, you know, whatever. And we'll kind of do that for him. Yeah. I, I don't have any more uh, big, big picture questions. Yeah. yeah. I think some kind of would be interesting to get into with you. You're just a good example of it. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times when we look at um, programming, one of the questions we talked about earlier and kind of discussed before was the programming differences and in, in how it differs per athlete. Um, one thing I like to look at and they talk about it is like neuromuscular efficiency or like the ability to turn on motor units differs for every athlete based off their background. So you come from a 2K row background, right? And so when we're programming your volume or increasing your volume, Chris can probably dump a lot of deadlifts and hinging and weightlifting. Like you said, before you went to selection, you can even squat 225. Because you just don't have that ability quite yet to turn on your motor units to kind of put you in a a hurtful place. He has to be probably really careful with the amount of all-out rowing work or all-out running work because you have such a great base and you have such a great skill and ability to go super hard. that like I'm sure if I said, hey, go row 2K as fast as you can, you'd you'd be scared of that workout. Versus terrified. Do a five by two back squat with a five second negative. You're just like, okay, sure. I'm the opposite, right? Like I, I'm a little bit too careful. I'm a powerful athlete, but if you give me a, a five second lower back squat with like two reps, I'm like, dude, that's thirty seconds of work of like a heavy weight, and my motor units are recruiting so much that it's gonna burn me. I need a nap afterwards. Semi concept to you for a row. You do two k row you got to go take a nap for 30 minutes because you need to recover from that. And so when we look at athletes, that's one of our questions is what's your background? So I know 
kind of what I'm looking at program-wise and where the volume can come from to make you feel like you're doing enough. Because that's one of the things I hate giving more, giving more, giving more. And also to prevent injury. Like if we just up the volume using rowing, you would get injured because you can go so hard. Yeah, and, and I think like the, the balance of what we do is we take some of that sporting approach and apply it to, to the tactical realm and the things that you need. Hard part is like you don't have stats. Like Jeremy was saying, like you could, we could give you a number, pick 2K, and you could probably tell us like what some of the top times in the world are right now, even though you're not doing as much as you were. You could tell us your top times. You have a relative gauge to know what to go for. And sometimes psychologically that helps. One, there's the goal gradient hypothesis, right? The four-minute mile. Can't do it. Can't do it. Banister broke it. And within the, in the first year or two, you had double-digit runners doing it. If you aren't as familiar with strength, specifically your own strength, you don't know what your own capacity is. And a lot of these things are teaching you more than they are developing something. I'm going to give you a good example. Jeremy, on uh, Monday, a guy who couldn't squat 225 before selection did five pause front squats at 225. Then immediately turned around and did Litvinov intervals at 225. So six front squats immediately into a 400 run at max effort um, in the same session, six times. Right? I was literally going to use that as an example. Because <laughs> like, I, saw, I saw that in the program. God, that's going to be so much fun. Yeah. Like, get to do these pause squats. And, and in my mind, I was like, no, I've never done that with 225 before. Like, I should yeah. probably try to do that at 225. And it really wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't unmake me. Uh-huh. But then Wednesday, I saw that there was a 12-minute, 100% max effort run. Yep. And I'm looking at my phone like, do you know what that'll do to me? Yeah. Like, and so that's an example. Like, we did not even talk about that before this. Like, I was going to use an example, but that's if we look yep. at it like that's thirty six squats followed by a run, and or in that session in the interval, and then the back squats before it. Like for someone who's maybe more of a powerlifting athlete or a strong kind of keep from Olympic weightlifting background who can squat really well, we lose we use Alan Dunlap as an example. Like if I tell him to do six squats at X percentage of whatever he chose to do that day, that's a huge kind of hit for him. And then going into a 400 meter run, where for you, it's like, cool, that's 36 squats. We just upped our weekly volume and we're good to go. But yeah. then, like you said, the 12 minute, you're like, dude, this. Yeah. And that's, that's where, like, you know, early on in my coaching career, I would have looked at that workout and been like, oh, yeah, leg strength and conditioning. There's so much more to it than that. There's bracing, right? Breathing and bracing and your postural stability and I find like, that to be significantly harder like, yeah. I feel like the brace I take before I start the squat takes more out of me than doing the repetition yeah and if you've noticed like you've got a strength goal absolute strength 440 pounds we haven't been doing a true absolute strength program with you because I know it's not about your adding more mass so a lot of people would say you want a 440 pound deadlift sure put 20 pounds on Training like a power lifter. Hell yeah. Gallon of milk a day, brother. Yeah. And then you can't run. So for you, it's been more about power to weight ratio, kind of like Jeremy was talking about motor unit recruitment within that pattern and your ability to breathe and brace. And so for you as a respiratory dominant athlete for all those years, breathing really well, it is hard for you to breathe and brace to lift against heavy weight. The, the, the good side of that is even when you're breathing and bracing, you still have a good left ventricle that is pumping heart through that systemic resistance, right? But the downside is you can't brace enough to have the postural stability to lift that weight. But let's switch it around. On Wednesday, 
after an 18-minute run at a casual 627, 80% effort, a 12-minute AMRAP of snatches, box jumps, wall balls, and push press, which he did pretty pretty good output on. Then his aerobic block two was a um, 12-minute run at max effort, casual 543-mile time. After all that, so you're still maintaining your engine. Then let's go two days later, hitting some heavy singles on his clean, 225. Tied his previous PR. Weeks into this training cycle, after all that cumulative fatigue from the week and the training cycle, so our data is showing us that he's progressing the right way, but we're not detracting from the other things that he needs from his job, which is the readiness piece, and we're making it in a fashion that it might not have been the quickest progression, but I feel confident we're not going to hurt him, hopefully. I mean, catastrophe does happen. We're not going to hurt him. We're smart about it. He's not risking getting sick during the Rona times. And this is continual. And that's what I was going to get to to tie all this back up. Is you asked early on in your question, what does it look like five years from now for a tactical athlete? I'm going to take you one further. What does it look like 15 years from now when you're a team sergeant, when you're whatever? Like if you decide to stay in the military, we still need you keeping up with the young bucks to a degree. You have to, right? Um, you still have to set the example as a senior leader. You're probably not going to be winning any of the physical events, but I want you to be at that level not like some of the ones you see, you know, drinking coffee by the gallon, smoking cigarettes and, you know, waving you as you run out, waving to you as you run out of company area. You're still able to compete. You're still able to do it at a high level. And now we get this intangible return on investment. What I mean by that? I've been in the military almost 20 years. Got a bunch of deployed time, got a bunch of experience that you're never going to buy back. You're never going to get my deployed time from 04 to 06 in Ramadi and Baghdad and Fallujah back. But if I can stay in the job at a high level level longer, I can impart that to the new generation. Instead of breaking you early, instead of getting you burnt out early, and now we just made an investment for the military in your unit and you as a human that we can't put into words. And as a sport athlete, that doesn't happen as much because we are chasing these objective measures, like my CrossFit athletes want to win the CrossFit Games or win a sanction or win something like that. That's a fleeting thing, and it's really cool. Because not many people can say those things. Competing at the national level, wearing the stars and stripes, is pretty damn cool. Not many people ever get to experience that. But you get that stamp on time, you get that medal, you get that thing, then you ask, then what? (laughs) And so, you know, that's the difference, right? There's a finite amount of time to compete at a high level in given sports. You know, with the strength athletes and a lot of the field sport athletes, like take the NFL, it's a three and a half year time span on your career most of the time, right? Three and a half years to be at your peak. And that's all downhill. For my tactical athletes, we can't do that. If I'm looking at your course of a career, you know, timeline wise, and, and, and on the bottom axis of the graph, I've got time. Well, as time goes on, your technical ability and your competence just skyrockets. That doesn't go down. You get better as you go. But your physical absolutely does. We have to accept that fact. You get older, you decline. So if I can slide that scale right, if I can keep your physical decline further down the timeline and keep your technical experience increasing, now that is how we make a higher caliber, higher level operator deep into their career without breaking them early. And that's the difference with with competitive athletes. We have to accept there is a amount of time on their career that's typically a short window. There are some outliers, the Frasers, the Fronings, the other ones. But typically it's a short career, three to five years and you're done. 
mean, you, even if you take that example with the Frazier and Frodings, like, people forget also they had, like, really extensive fitness backgrounds before they even started performing in a sport. And so when we look at, um, when I look at, like, older military tactical athletes, they have such a great base of fitness that now they're able to maintain it. And so if you look at, say, Frazier snatching since he was, like, seven years old, right? Like, just... Olympic weightlifter, almost going to the, the national team. Um, now he's able to train smarter and probably differently than most of the athletes that started four years ago because such a foundational motor recruitment and being able to aerobically be fit to where when he needs to turn on, he can, aka get ready for a selection. But majority of the time, he's cruising at 85% fitness level readiness. He's able to just perform. And so I think that's something I look at with my tech athletes when we talk about the 15 years thing. It's like looking out in 15 years, you need to be the guy that just hangs around. Like you're always there. You're not going to sit call because you're sick. You're not skipping out waiting there one goodbye. Like you're there and you're ready to compete. May not be the best, but you'll at least in a military world, you'll get the respect for showing up, which is a lot of times after that. Yeah, and that's, you know, to, to pull it all back together, like the difference with following template programming or following more of a competitor CrossFit programming for the tactical athlete is longevity, right? There's only so many cycles I can do with snatching and other stuff before my shoulders implode. And do I need to do that for the job? That's, that's an individual question. That's an individual trade-off. But when we do holistic programming for our tactical athletes, we look at, like Jeremy was saying earlier, contractions, movement patterns, those things, balance that over the short-term cycle, three or four weeks, long-term cycle, like a year, and then a career. And we really try and say, like, career longevity is first. If I break you right now chasing some goal, I did you a disservice. Whether you get your goal or not, I did you a disservice. And having lived it and um, done it myself over the years and gotten a lot wrong, my biggest issue with a lot of the template programs and things that are out there is that's that person's one shot at a career sometimes, and it's downplayed for money. And what I mean is, like, yeah, sell, sell a group template program. Your, call it your SFAS selection program or whatever other stuff with it. It's better than nothing. But now you're operating under the guise of this will make you pass. And that's not necessarily always true. Um, and, you know, like, some of our athletes don't always make it through certain events. But I'm happy to say it's never been a physical detriment. It's either been an injury or a decision-making process along that line that we can't control. And I'm good with that because on the other end, as, as big Sarge, you know, um, finishing up a career, that talent that we need that will put that effort and intensity and dedication into a training program, the, the thing that the one thing that they can control in the grand scheme of things, their physical ability, that has translation to other aspects of the job that you, you see from the senior level. I was going to ask because you mentioned before we started this, and I've been waiting the whole time to, yeah. to hear you talk about it is uh, you were talking about, you know, preparing for workouts, giving quality sessions correlates to job performance mm-hmm. in the tactical realm. Yep. And I haven't heard about that before. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just say this. Um, Cause we could, we could spend another hour and a half on that. Um, obviously uh, in a, in a prior life, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the military and a lot of time in the special operations community and seen a lot of the selection processes back end on how they're used to pick the right candidate physical preparation and the ability to handle pain and some other things have a lot of correlates to long-term job success now that doesn't mean the most fit person is the best 
because a lot of times in the military, the most fit person uh, can be carried genetically and everything else. A lot of times, okay? But when we look at across a whole spectrum of performance, and that's why a lot of these, these selections will last three to four weeks, the physical preparation that you put in will translate to how you prepare for a daily event, well, how you prepare for other things that don't involve physical stuff. You will pre-plan. You will schedule accordingly. You will prioritize or triage your needs. Like you were talking about, you'll plan your snacks and your warm-ups and, and these other things and your mental yeah. approach relative to the task. We see that carry out to more things. More importantly, someone that doesn't try a get-fit-quick gimmick or try something to just peak for that event, when you do that for three to four weeks, it's unsustainable to hold a facade. So if you are the gym bro that can do some pretty cool CrossFit things, but then we put you under a rucksack for three or four weeks and put you into a completely unknown stress environment and you don't have all of your, you know, bands for warm up and your your foam rollers and then your recovery things and everything else and we break you down. And we break you down to your 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 base, then we get to see who you truly are. And the same principles that allowed you to prepare and do successful things physically will come out in other ways. So when we break down that facade and you you don't have your racehorse training preparation and we got to use a little bit more biking, like can this guy endure? Does he have the principles to get stuff done when he needs to? But he doesn't have to rely on picture perfect everything. We see that translate to job success in other areas. So hopefully that, that clears it up a little bit. All right, guys. So obviously we're uh, we're hitting about an hour and a half right now. Talked about this being thirty minutes, so we'll wrap it up. Um, thank you guys for listening, Taylor. Thank you guys for or thank you for coming out and you know uh, jumping on this with us. Um, if you guys have any questions, hit up Chris at EvolutionAthleticsNC.com. Hit our website. Uh, hit our social media links if you would, and then send us any questions you got. We are taking tactical athletes right now. We've got a couple openings. So if you're interested in that, once again, email us or reach out. Um, And as always, we look forward to hearing what you thought of this podcast. And once again, remember to get better every day.